Um, thanks, everyone. Welcome to our Berkman Tuesday luncheon series on a Wednesday, which seems to be happening increasingly lately because we have great folks like Michelle who uh, are here to uh, speak to us. As many of you know, if you've been coming to these before, we are live streaming, so just keep that in mind. This will be archived online if you ask any uh, questions, which we will leave plenty of time for questions at the end, and I hope you do. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Michelle Raymond, who I've gotten to know over the last few years uh, in a couple of trips I've made to the University of Geneva. We've had the pleasure of having Michelle here at Berkman as a visiting researcher this year, and speaking selfishly has just been a phenomenal resource for us as we've been thinking about questions involving researching the right to be forgotten and uh, European privacy regulation more broadly. Um, and he's going to be talking today about uh, common standards for the right to be forgotten. Michelle, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, well, first, thanks for everyone for coming here in such large numbers. I wasn't expecting such a crowd today. Uh, thanks also for Chris for introducing me. And also, thanks for the rest, to the rest of the Berkman community, not only for giving me the space to talk about my research today, but also for all the support they've been giving me in the last year I've been spending at Berkman. Uh, so, uh, just... Uh, one thing I would like before starting is that uh, my speech goes a lot um, back and forth between different ideas, and I'm scared that if uh, there are many questions uh, that ask things that I will be explaining later in the speech, it might just bog down things a little. So I will maybe uh, keep the, the Q&A for after I finish with my talking. So a uh, little bit about myself. So I come from the University of Geneva in Switzerland. My background is in conflict of laws, meaning international litigation, who has jurisdiction, uh, what is the choice of law for, uh, uh, for these sort of litigation, this sort of, 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 of discussions. And uh, my PhD was on the topic of defamation on the internet, what law applies to it. And then I went on to the topic of the right to be forgotten uh, in European law. Um, I'm under a stipend uh, for one year here at Berkman, uh, given from the National Science uh, Foundation, uh, to provide my perspective uh, from a conflict of law uh, uh, sort of angle uh, to these sort of issues. So my research will be published in two forthcoming articles. They will hopefully be published soon. The, pre the presentation you will see today is a sort of collage of my main findings in these two articles. So uh, you'll know everything there is to know without reading the 50 pages or so that comprise all of this. So the plan for today First, I will go over quickly uh, the basics of the right to be forgotten. Then I will ask the question, why do we need uh, common standards for the right to be forgotten? How may we achieve them? And then what are the obstacles that are facing the current like attempts to give uh, a real identity to the uh, right to be forgotten? But this sort of discussion cannot go on without going back to the basics. Now, when you hear the term right to be forgotten, I'm sure you have a lot of different thoughts going on into your brain, and that's normal because the right to be forgotten is a general concept uh, that actually refers to a diversity of procedures and legal obligations that all share the same basic conceit, that is, dealing with the permanence of personal data in the digital landscape. Information you have about yourself that just on the internet somewhere, how do we deal with that? But under this like header of the right to be forgotten, you have uh, different expressions of this notion. The most famous of it, and the most well-known, is of course the right to be delisted, which uh, is a creation from European law 
and from European data protection law in order to be more precise, uh, following the famous Google's paid judgments. I won't go into any details on that judgment. It's been covered well enough until today. But I will just say that this right to be delisted is rather limited. It allows European citizens to request search engines to take down search results leading to outdated or irrelevant content that may harm privacy rights. So only such results, only adopted content. The right to be delisted, however, has a limited shelf life. In two years from now, the Directive on Data Protection in Europe will be replaced by the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR for short. This will update and harmonize data protection law in Europe, and Article 17 contains what it calls a right to be erased or forgotten. Now, the $1,000 question you might have is, is this the same thing as the right to be delisted? The answer is, no one knows. Um, uh, half of the of the doctrine says that it's basically the same thing as we've been doing under the right to be delisted, so nothing will change. The other half think there is a risk of expanding the right to be delisted to other intermediaries, so not only search engines, but also uh, social networks, internet repositories of content, all this sort of stuff. But the, provis the provision itself does not say anything about these things. So it's all a matter of interpretation. You don't know what's going to be in the future. Uh, so in this situation, I won't go into any specifics here. I, I don't want to, to really bog this discussion down with like very in-depth uh, knowledge of this article. I just want to take the standpoint that uh, the right to be delisted might get expanded into the future, and I'll use that as a sort of baseline for the rest of the discussion today. Now, European Union has been at the basis of most of the discussion on the right to be forgotten, but one must not forget that there are other expressions of the right to be forgotten that have popped up all over the world. You have some in Chile, Colombia, Japan, Mexico, Russia, and even though all of these expressions share the basic conceit I've been talking about, the permanence of memory in the digital landscape, all of these tackle the issue in very different ways. Uh, that's sort of a very different from the European approach. Uh, my colleague Charlie Ruth Castro, with, uh, who I've been talking to during this past year, told me the censorship element of taking down content is, for example, much more pronounced in the Latin American version of the rights to be forgotten. So, in the interest of time and not keeping you here for the whole afternoon, I will be talking only about the European Union version of the right to be forgotten. Uh, but you have to take into account that this is only one overall one piece of the overall puzzle. The issues I'll be talking to you about today will probably be even more pronounced if we are trying to consider the greater international legal landscape of the right to be forgotten. So, let's move on to the second part, the need for common standards of the European right to be forgotten. So you now might be wondering why I'm even asking the question, because as it stands out, we already have common standards on the right to be forgotten. Well, yeah, those are Googles. Right now, the right to be delisted enjoys a period of relative stability. Well, that's true. But it's due to a few factors. First, the right to be delisted is only about search results. Second, Google has an iron grip 
on the market serving search results. So this allows for a concentration of removal requests. Third, while there exists an oversight mechanism which allows national authorities to review Google's decisions on the right to be forgotten, only about 1% of these cases are actually appealed to data protection authorities. Those are the ones on the right. So as, the sort of, as my scheme points out, we are living right now on a closed circuit. You see a lot of requests filtering, filtering, filtering into Google, but almost none of it coming out. And it's a black box. You don't know what's going, what's going out. Uh, so this has come under severe criticism from many authors. Some say Google lacks transparency, it's a lack of judicial oversight, etc., etc. Um, but on the other hand, I might say that they did a pretty nice job of actually taking the burden of implementing the right to be forgotten and then implementing it on a procedural level. My point today will not be about Google's role. My point is about going beyond Google because this narrative is actually harmful. It sort of puts us in a way of thinking that it's Google's right to be forgotten. It's only about Google. And um, I had a very funny experience when uh, trying to make this presentation. I asked Bing uh, where it's its formal right to be forgotten, and it told me you should look at Google. <laughs> It's all about Google. Google is at the center of it. Um, so if this goes to show that there's a general perception of Google being the, the, the stalwart of the right to be forgotten, I don't think you could find a better example. But in truth, I would really like to push against this narrative. Uh, yes, Google is at the center of the right to be forgotten, but it's only due to the combination of um, events that I talked to you earlier. So. What happens if the situation starts to change? What if other Snowden-like leaks happen and people lose faith in Google as a search engine? What if a competitor pops out? What if over time it just simply loses its monopoly on the search market? What if going out of Google's uh, thing but more into regulation, Article 17 of the GDPR, as I've stated before, were to extend the right to be forgotten to other intermediaries that are outside of the search engine business. Now, I can't make bold predictions about the future, but there's at least a very real risk that the space of the right to be forgotten would become much more crowded in the future. And it might look like something like this. So in this new situation, Google will just be one of the many intermediaries that are bound to implement the right to be forgotten or delisted or what, what have you. But, and then you have a lot of questions that start to arise. What happens if each of these intermediaries start to have their own standards on what should be removed and what should stay? What if Google decides to take down a link but Bing and DuckDuckGo doesn't? Uh, on appeal, what out of all of the data protection authority would have jurisdiction to decide on multi-intermediaries multi, uh, cases? Can one DPA even decide for all of these intermediaries? What happens, uh, as is the case of DuckDuckGo today, if one of those intermediaries do not have in, even have assets in Europe? How can you even enforce the right to be forgotten? That's a European thing against a company that does not have any activity there. So there are a lot of unanswered questions that lie beyond Google's shadow. 
And that was the, the starting point of the first article that I've talked to you about. It was about confronting uh, real-life cases and situation on the right to be forgotten to procedure rules, see if we can find some way out of these questions. And what I found was completely terrifying. Let me give you a, sh a short example. So this is Google's form on the right to be forgotten. You probably must have visiting it uh, during your research or whatever. And so if you want to remove a search result on either Google or Bing or whatever, you have to choose your country of residence from a list and support this claim with identification. So this serves two functions. First function, it proves that you're from the European Union and you can actually use the right to be forgotten. Second function, it grounds your claim into your home jurisdiction. Like, I'm a Spanish guy, I live in Spain, I want to take down some content, I want to be sure that I have access to the Spanish DPA in order to, to appeal the claim if I need to. So it sort of gives a legal grounding to the whole claim system. For a few years now, we've been hinging on this sort of system to apply the right to be forgotten in practice. We have happily operated on a country of destination rule based on the, claim, on the claimant's place of residence. This, however, none of this is supported by the directive, by the text that makes the right to be forgotten exist in the first place. If you look at the rules of the data protection directive, uh, well, if you look at the choice of law rule, it's, it's, it rests on a modified country of origin rule that does not care at all for where the claimant is situated. In other words, I want you to take a second to let it sink in. The whole system upon which takedown requests on the right to be forgotten exists right now rests on nothing, on a judicial nothingness that just sort of exists somewhere out of pure practice. Uh, so if you ever get things more complicated, I've shown earlier, to more intermediaries, more stakeholders, different decisions coming from different intermediaries, then I have the very real fear that the whole system may break down. We have no rules to fall back upon. So there have been proposals for harmonizing the right to be forgotten. Uh, one year ago, I was in Geneva along with Urs Gasser and, uh, and Professor Jacques de Vera, and we were discussing a way of centralizing the, way, the, the right to be forgotten, like a proposition about transitioning the adjudication of the right to be forgotten to a common platform, which would take arbitration-like features. Of course, we're not the only ones. Uh, there were other proposals for harmonizing the right to be forgotten, like the one described by Sana Kolevska and Michael Elrostad. They took part in a Berkman luncheon that took, that took place long, long ago, and they had a proposal based on a safe harbor sort of concept. But in order to do that, you need to actually agree on what the right to be forgotten is and what are the standards used for taking down content. So this leads me into the second part of my presentation. So can the right to be forgotten be formalized in a series of common standards? Uh, this is the topic of my second article. And in answering this question, I use a very conflict of laws-like approach, which takes me into the first question is qualification, characterization. What is the right to be forgotten? If you answer that, then you might know what lies beyond. 
So I would like to propose that the right to be forgotten right now is what I would call a legal grab bag. So you have this one big bag. You put a lot of different things into it. These things, they may or may not be similar in nature, shape, form, whatever. But as long as they're in the bag, you don't really think about the content. You think about the bag. You have to go inside the bag and take things out of the bag to actually consider the things that are inside. The bag, of course, is data protection law. That's how we've been thinking about the right to be forgotten in Europe until now. That's, it's being under the Data Protection Directive, it's Article 17 of the GDPR, it's data protection law. But what about the content? Well, in order to uh, give some answers on that, I want to reach into the bag and pull out three examples that show the complexity of the right to be forgotten. So first example, a person who is not a public figure wishes to remove the link linking to a blog she made a long time ago. She doesn't have the password to erase it. She just wants uh, Google to remove the link to it. This is rather plain data stewardship. It's not really controversial. It's like I have my data. I put it on myself. I want to take it back. Okay. Now let's dig in further. Let's have a second example. A person wants to remove a link leading to a website publishing a past criminal conviction made by a German court. Now here... It's more complicated. It's not about that person's desire to remove a link to personal data. It's also about the value of that information as a marker of social identity and criminal rehabilitation. To really know what to do in that case, I think you should probably have to ask German law, what is the lifespan of a criminal record? What is the German conception of criminal rehabilitation? They probably have detailed procedural rules on what Info can be published on criminals, under what time frame, etc., etc. It's nothing actually really new. There's a link with an existing legal institution. That's criminal procedural law. Now let's finish with my, with my third example, which is the most controversial and the most often used when discussing the right to be forgotten. So we have a politician or an actor who wishes to remove a link leading to an article discussing past sexual misconduct. Well, why would that person want to take that, that link? It's probably because that person failed to have an injunction granted against the original article in the first place. So, but that's one of the cases where the discussion on the right to be forgotten gets really polarized. On one side, you have non-EU lawyers saying, it's about censorship. You want to censor this article by taking down a link to it. And then you have the EU lawyer saying, it's about data protection. It's about, uh, it's about the right to have this old and outdated thing taken off the internet. In my opinion, both sides are actually correct. Um, regarding the EU perspective, it's true that the right to be forgotten is not an injunction. Injunction exists to take down illegal content that harm reputation. And the right to be forgotten, on the <coughs> other hand, is to take down links to content that is outdated and irrelevant, but still legal. So they have to pass this threshold. But to, to reference to the, the US point of view, the non-European point of view, when you have one of these cases coming through a search engine, they still have to decide whether the content has become irrelevant or not. And when you have to decide upon that, 
you have to ask yourself questions that are very familiar to privacy lawyers. How popular is the claimant? Is the article still, still newsworthy? What's the impact on privacy, the freedom of information? Is the original source trustworthy? Now, these sort of questions. It's not the same thing, but there's a definite interplay between, on one hand, the right to be forgotten, and on, on the other hand, privacy injunction, existing legal structures of privacy, defamation, and content takedown. Uh, I hope you'll at least concede that there's a methodological link, if not a substantial link. So now we have an idea of what's in the bag. So now we can start to think about it. There's still a simplification somewhat. But where do I want to take you with this? Well, two things. First, it explains what I've been talking to you about in the first part. The Data Protection Directive, uh, in its procedural part, choice of law part, is about defining when European data law applies to data processors, in what capacity, what act of processing, what law applies to Google. But on the other hand, it was never drafted to support a quasi-injunction right granted directly to European citizens. In this sense, the procedural like elements, they just don't fit. You, have, you try to shove something into the bag, it, does, it just splits out from everywhere. So this is the cause of the procedural breakdown I've been talking about earlier. We're not really talking about the same thing. Now, second argument, um, the imagery of the legal grab bag casts what I call a huge shadow on the idea of finding common standards on, on the right to be forgotten. Because if you look at European law, without even talking about US law, well, this is harmonized. This is European law in the proper sense of it. This, however, is not. This is still state law. This is still national member state law. It's not European law at all. Criminal procedure, criminal rehabilitation, this is still national state law. My colleague Elder Haber, he's not here today, I think, uh, from University of Haifa, will be talking about the criminal uh, elements of the right to be forgotten. Uh, I won't enter much into detail of that. My field is more personal privacy. And if you look at personal privacy from the tort angle in Europe, you will find that it's a complete mess. So. We like to frame the right to be forgotten as an issue of US versus EU, with the EU somehow agreeing to a standard of privacy. But that's not exactly true. It's more complicated than that. Of course, yes, the European Union agrees to a general right of privacy, according to Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights. But the details of it, it's still all over the place. Some countries have criminal laws on privacy, some are still civil law, have lots of differing standards. If you want to know if your injunction will succeed in any given case, you have to juggle with the national law of every member state. And this fragmented state of affairs is not for lack of trying either. Uh, European Union has since 2007 worked to find common standards for these issues to no avail. They even failed to agree on a conflict of law rule for these stores under the Rome II regulation. There are fundamental differences in the way each member state manages the equilibrium between freedom of press and personality rights. So, it got so bad in 2007 after failure of finding a conflict rule, uh, conflict rule under Rome II, the Commission mandated a research group to make a comparative assessment of privacy rights in Europe. 
uh, in order to cover those gaps. And the answer of the group said, we have no idea what we're doing. Let's just give up. So the legislative effort, effort died soon after that. Uh, if any uh, English lawyers are in the room, they will tell you that following the Max Mosley case, there's a lot of pushback against privacy in England because they sort of got dragged kicking and screaming into the whole privacy thing. And they're even right now considering of opting out of some basic rules of European uh, privacy and having their own Bill of Rights. So even inside a country you have pushback. How do you want to have the right to be forgotten for everyone if you don't agree even on those issues on a national level? So this leads me to the conclusion of my talk. If you take this narrative into account, of course I'm bringing more complexity into the argument, but this complexity is at the root of why we're not agreeing on the right to be forgotten. You have some people arguing, oh, it's about the First Amendment. Other, other people arguing, oh, it's about privacy. But we're not actually arguing about the same thing. We're picking out the thing we like the most in a bag and start arguing about that. And, we, and when other people just try to use the, the thing they're passionate about, then it, just, it does not lead to a conversation, but to a series of monologues. So uh, furthermore, even before trying to expand the right to be forgotten to the US, maybe the European Union would need to know what's inside the bag, do some soul searching about the deeper nature of the, of the right. What do we want to do with it? So here are some pointers maybe for the future, which may lead into the Q&A. Finding common standards has three big risks. First risk, there's a risk of conflict with existing legal tools. If we expand the right to be forgotten to content, I can take down an article, then what good is a privacy injunction? Is there friction? How can we think about that? Second, risk of legislative overreach of data protection law. Right now, everything is data. We live in a digital society. Does that mean that all of the aspects of the right to be forgotten have to be solved by this tool of data protection law? Can a data protection lawyer come to a privacy lawyer and say, oh, we solved that for you? I think there might be a definitely problem with that. Finally, risk of legal fragmentation in practice. If we just come with a top-down concept of the right to be forgotten without doing a, um, a bottom-up consensus on the values we want to defend on the right to be forgotten, then no one will actually agree to it and legal fragmentation will still persist. Now I'm not saying that legal fragmentation is a bad thing in of itself. Legal fragmentation can certainly work and that's why private international law exists in the first place. But to make it work, you have to have good procedural rules. And this leads me back to the first part of my presentation. We don't have procedural rules for that. So with that, I conclude. I thank you for your time. Uh, lots of questions I can think of. But um, anyone want to? Want to kick us off with some questions? Maybe I'll start by virtue mm -hmm. of sitting next to you. So it, it's, it occurs to me that there is um, a line, and I'm, I'm coming at this from a very US-oriented mm -hmm. perspective, but let's say outside the right to be forgotten in terms of what content a particular site can host or search engine can point toward, there's a line of what's lawful and unlawful. Mm -hmm. Unlawful because it, it violates intellectual property laws or constitutes defamation or that sort of thing. But within the realm of things that are lawful, we generally think it's a pretty good thing. Maybe some people disagree would disagree with this, that there are many different sites that 
um, come up with different sets of standards about what content they want to host. So the content moderation policy of the New York Times comment section might be very different from the content moderation policy a particular moderator imposes on a certain subreddit on Reddit. And some video hosting sites might be much more tolerant of nudity or adult content, and others are less tolerant mm -hmm. of that. And that responds to the diversity of interests about the things that we might all want to consume online. Is there any risk that standardizing things, again, beyond, beyond the point of defining what's truly unlawful and what's lawful, within the realm of what's lawful, is there a risk that creating standards is going to cut back on that diversity? Um, I see your point, and that's what I've been trying to, to, to get through with the last point of my presentation. Mm -hmm. Diversity is not bad in of itself, and we certainly should uh, should uh, have a culture of, of diversity of different legal norms and like different ways of handling the, 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 the problem. But the thing is that if you don't have a solid backbone of handling things when things go wrong, then you you don't actually know what, what what's going to happen in the future. Right now, these sort of issues, like uh, as you mentioned, like New York Times comments, etc., they're sort of work because, like all of the major uh, corporations that deal with personal data, they are based in the U.S. They have U.S.-based laws, and it's like okay, so the the right to be forgotten is the first major attempt of having the EU try to strike down when it's on European law uh, to uh, a U.S. giant giant corporation. Uh, and you, from the pushback that has been given between the U.S. and the EU, you can see that it's already rattling some feathers and sort of giving the way to a whole uh, uh, conversation. But if you take it from a more international perspective, what if like uh, every country starts to have its own way of doing things and then we may end up for more fragmented internet? Maybe is that something we want? Is that something we don't want? I don't know. I'm not really into into the, the deeper policy aspects because I think still there are many answers that need to be given, but not necessarily by the same people that have been talking about the right to be forgotten until now. You have criminal law. Uh, I haven't heard much about criminal law uh, on the right to be forgotten until now. So yes, maybe you found some standards. Um, uh, this led me maybe to another point. There might be some things that we agree on on a, on a global on a global thing. Like uh, as I as I've shown, there, it's a legal grab bag. Maybe we will agree uh, uh, even between the U.S. and the EU on the less controversial aspects of the right to be forgotten. I have the right to my data. If it's something I've put on the internet, I can take it back. Uh, that's less controversial than the more speech-related aspects of the internet. Maybe we can find something about it. Also, maybe uh, linking someone uh, to a criminal past, but as a victim, this could be also agreed upon mm -hmm. because it's less about speech, it's less about... Mm -hmm. So maybe we could have a sort of baseline and then drift from mm -hmm. that and right. still keep some level of uh, right. diversity, but still have some procedure behind it in order to manage that, mm -hmm. that diversity. That's great. When you say that Bing is referring to Google, <laughs> do you mean that... Google gives Bing all of his takedown requests, and Bing also implements them. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I meant that more as a joke rather than a. Well, I'm curious where that actually happens. Does, does, is there no way to submit a takedown request to Bing? They have they have their own form. Uh, they have their own form. You can access it, so it's a sep completely separate system. 
Now, one question that might be interesting that has not been really tackled is uh, how can meta search engines implement the right to be forgotten? Um, I don't want to get into that, but if someone could tackle the, the, the issue, I'd be very happy. <laughs> if, if there was a database of takedown requests, somebody could, you know, turn that back into a search engine for things that were supposed to have been removed mm -hmm. and put that up. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, th that's what we're trying to get at with efforts such as Lumen and the discussion I've been highlighting about centralizing the, the right to be forgotten into a database. But uh, formally, you don't have to have a database of the, the right to be forgotten. So if you're Bing and you just want to say, no, I, I just want to have my own system, you have nothing to prevent you from doing that. So that that's, yeah. Other questions? Yeah, right here and then. Thank you so much for a, a really great uh, overview and um, flagging of tough questions. It It's striking that there's such a trove of data within Google, you know, as in so many other situations. Um, is the only thing that's coming out of the black box now the 1% of appeals? Yes. So we don't know, for example, whether Google's lawyers who are processing these requests are taking it to that next step of granularity that you're suggesting and looking at the national standards for, um, for the privacy-related ones, for example. We can't be sure for certain, and one uh, hint that may go against uh, in this direction is that um, following the, the Google Spain judgment, the Article 29 Working Party, which is an explanatory body of the European Union, came down with some guidelines on the right to be forgotten. And there are very basic ones, you won't find any real answers in them. But the, the striking thing is that uh, Google then made their own set of guidelines, which are subtly different from the ones that uh, are, were made by the Article 29 uh, working group. Uh, if you read um, the literature made by uh, Julia Browse on the right to be forgotten, she states that uh, Google sort of took the, ra the right to be forgotten and ran away with it. And that goes directly in the direction you, you're suggesting. But and one thing with regard to the grab bag, as you describe mm -hmm. it, and that's actually right, it, in a situation like this, it seems natural that there should be sort of a developing common law mm. of of what mm. could be what should be delisted and what shouldn't. And it's just such a shame that we don't know the con. You know, Google has developed a common mm. law for itself, but yes. we just don't know it. And it it seems a a terrible pity that we we can't know. Yeah, um, there definitely should be, but I also feel for Google in some on some respects because like if they publish uh, like their decisions, then maybe like uh, some uh, DPAs, national DPAs, they say, oh, the French DPA might say, but this has nothing to do with the way I, I'm trying to do uh, data protection in France, so I'm going to appeal systematically to you or something like that. They, 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 ha they have to walk a tightrope between harmonization of harmonizing something that's actually not harmonized in the first place. That's very difficult. Here we go. So you said before that, that <clears throat> it seems like people go to the right to be forgotten um, if they've lost, you know, an injunction uh, mm. against a particular piece. Um, is there any indication that, like, um, the presence of, like, an easy right to be forgotten form on, like, Google site 
um, that that's like led to like a decrease in injunctions or are they sort of stabilizing? In the US there's been a couple of interesting cases um, since the right to be forgotten happened in Europe um, that have been sort of a mixed bag in terms of trying to get injunctions. So I'm kind of curious whether uh, you've seen any difference in that. I don't actually have any data on that, so I really can't answer your question. But uh, I'm quite sure that if ever there are some injunctions, there will probably be any uh, uh, right to be forgotten notices just made alongside it. It's, now it's part of the arsenal. I uh, have to take account of it. Question, other questions? Thoughts? Vivek? So I'm curious as to your thoughts as to how far harmonization could go. I mean, so there's a, I, I'm starting with a couple of premises. We're assuming that there are going to be intermediaries who are present across multiple jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions are going to have substantively different conceptions on the three, you know, the three elements, the grab bag, right? You know, mm -hmm. criminal, uh, forgetting criminal records, privacy, etc. right? So, how far could the substantive harmonization go? And if, if there is not substantive harmonization, is there a way to create some principal limits around, you know, maybe formalizing what Google has done, which is to say that certain rights, certain privacy rights, you know, only attach to individuals who have certain connections with, um, you know, a country that vests them with those rights. So if I'm a German living in England, I may have a different relationship to my criminal record than if I were a German in German, Germany. Is that the right approach or is that a viable approach? I definitely think there should be an effort uh, right now uh, about finding common grounds and like uh, uh, standards about uh, the right to be forgotten. But I also feel that um, right now there's, there's being a lot of pushback against this, but mostly become we haven't really used the sort of grab bag imagery to describe the right to be forgotten, mostly, oh, it's the right to be forgotten. Um, now, I, I strongly believe that the most uh, speech-related elements of the right to be forgotten will not be harmonized, and that's, then we can just give up. I mean, if I just came in in the US and say, hey guys, your First Amendment thing, I think we should really talk about that. <laughs> I don't think this will go out well, and it will be exactly the same if you do something similar in every European country about their own free speech laws. Actually, I reminded, of, I don't remember the name of the author, but a strong article I read about the French author that's, that said exactly what I've been saying. We have a strong tradition of our press laws, uh, how, why is data protection on trying to harmonize this when we have refused it uh, uh, in the European Union in the first place? Because we want to have our own law for these issues. Uh, so the discussion might need to sort of compartmentalize the right to be forgotten, see what issues we can agree on, and definitely have, agree with you with that the most data, data protection law-ish issues of the right to be forgotten may be formalized and may be, uh, uh, may be agreed upon. But then we also have to find which areas we should just give up and then maybe use procedure uh, to uh, sort of, of manage these uh, discrepancies. Peter, yeah. So that suggests to me that the um, right to be forgotten is something that should be forgotten. Uh, that uh, where uh, you're trying to deal with a right, it, it implies harmonization, um, consistency. Wouldn't we be much better off if we just forgot that altogether and sat down and said, what are the problems that we are that we see that need to be solved and addressed, and work on those on 
a national level or where necessary on a um, uh, across European uh, level? I wouldn't go that far. I, I might say the right to be forgotten is an exceedingly bad response to a very good idea. Uh, the, 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 the base concept of uh, having, um, like, like in reference to the Google, Google Spain case, of not having a 10-year-old conviction that's really useless uh, be the first thing that's shown about you on Google, that is a concern. Uh, Giving context back uh, back to your own data, um, knowing like uh, sort of formalizing the power that uh, information intermediaries have about uh, showing your profile to everyone, uh, giving people the right to manage their own data and their own reputation on the internet. I think the core question is very interesting and it merits being defended. The thing is. Uh, the way it's been brought out by the European Union following the Google Spain judgment was very haphazard. Uh, we took like one paragraph from the, the budding GDPR project and we said, oh, it's right to be forgotten, so now everything has to follow it. And then you had like a huge conversation about something we don't know what it's about in the first place. And so everyone more or less has their own opinion about the right to be forgotten, which is either good or bad. Maybe we should just go to what values are we trying to protect in what judicial concept we're not inventing something new guys we're just trying to get some context back into the internet and start from that a bottom-up approach rather than top-down other questions about michelle's work yeah yes, we're here. Yeah. great i have a question and uh, do you think that uh, the right for, to be forgotten is an independent right that means it is uh, uh, provided by a statute, or, or when we uh, talk about this right, we will say it is a derivative right. We should talk about first it has a violation of privacy or other rights. That's a very good question. Now, um, if I put on my European hat, <laughs> I would say it's part of data protection because it's born under the EU data protection directive and like in all of these formal arguments. But I definitely see a sort of tendency to formalize the right to be forgotten as its own thing. You saw the procedural example I gave in my presentation. The whole practice does not work when you look at it on the context of the of the directive. So it's sort of a right that was born in the in the directive and then just had its own life of its own. And it certainly is starting to have a life of its own if we look at what's happening in Chile, what's happening in Russia, etc. So yes, uh, it might uh, start to become like an independent right that uh, becomes a real human right about. Uh, uh, about being forgotten, and there are being expressions of that in national law, even before like this uh, whole Google Spain judgment. But it's a whole cloud of many things that haven't been formalized properly, so it's sort of a difficult question because we sort of have to know what we're talking about before we talk about it. Yeah, David? Yes. So let's fast forward 50 years into the future. What do you think things look like? Are we looking at a more harmonized system? Do we see more fragmentation? Or are the issues so completely different because 
it is not as important as it once was. It's dangerous to make a prediction for years into the future on, on tape, too, so this is yes. a lot of pressure. I appreciate it. It's not an easy question. I'm curious, where, if you could think of the long-term trajectory, where do you think things are, are headed, if, if it's at all possible to tell? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's very uh, just give me three hours and I'll get back to you. <laughs> now, the, the very di difficult things about the right to be forgotten is that uh, it's such a short time frame. Uh, think about like 10 years ago, uh, Google wasn't at its place it was today. Uh, we had very different ways of looking at intermediaries on the internet, and the whole big data thing was just a nascent th uh, uh, if a thing that was kind of happening. And so most of the major issues uh, that we're facing today uh, with the right to be forgotten is a byproduct of the current uh, big data culture that we have right now. We have Google at the center of it. We have these whole data repositories that are sort of, uh, of, of juggling our data. I think the base concept that motivate the right to be forgotten, they will not change. And they haven't been new, actually, exactly. If you think about uh, libel tourism, about uh, issues of First Amendment being uh, uh, completely destroyed abroad because someone used forum shopping, uh, that, that's nothing new. You think about the Yahoo case of 10 years ago, that was not a right to be forgotten, but it was also a question of jurisdiction clashing on speech issues, on what regulation should be on the internet, and all that sort of stuff. So um, in some ways, the right to be forgotten is maybe old wine in new bottles. We just have a very sort of bubbled bottle and that uh, doesn't allow us to think back to the, the older examples we've been having. Now, I do think that the right to be forgotten, maybe in its current incarnation, is a passing fancy. Maybe uh, we won't have Google in the future and we'll have to think about new ways of thinking about the same issues. But the basic questions will remain the same as they have always been, uh, even before the advent of the digital landscape. Yeah. Yes? Does the European notion of the right to be forgotten distinguish between um, public figures or elected officials um, the way our First Amendment rights do? And this Just in order to there's the notion of a diminished right of privacy, you know, if once you step into the public sphere and just so that we protect our public discourse. So there is an exception on the public figure uh, about being a public figure. I mean, and if you're a public figure, you'll have more trouble uh, taking down a link uh, than if you're not. And uh, that's present on the Article 29 guidelines on right to be forgotten, also present on Google's guideline on right to be forgotten. Uh, it's also more or less a standby in European law because there's been jurisprudence on that, but uh, the Court of European Rights. But past the general idea of a public figure, you're on your own. You have to ask each jurisdiction how they handle the concept. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. Maybe a little bit more with the specula uh, speculations uh, in this field. Um, will you think or have you thought in a, in a how to integrate this conversation in a geopolitical um, level? not only including the Europe, United States, but also other visions, especially in a world and in an age with uh, immigrational hard challenges, not only in United States, also in Europe? That's also a tough question. Now, to be honest, I've been 
like mostly uh, working on the European right to be forgotten and like analyzing the system from a, a, a international uh, from from a conflict of laws perspective, not really th thinking about the broader policy choices because I think that's not really my choices to make. You have to to ask a lawmaker. You have to ask someone who's deeply entrenched in U.S. law and European law. So I sort of took the point of view of a neutral third observer to give these sort of conclusions. Now, uh, what I would say is that there are mechanisms in place that exist to have these uh, conversations on the, on, the, on the subject. I remember at the la uh, last year, uh, it was an Internet Governance Forum, there were panels about the right to be forgotten. And this issue was completely striking because on one, hand, one side of the room you had the European lawyers that were like, you know, the right to be forgotten is only data. Then you had the Mexican lawyer who says, it's about censorship, it's terrible, it's a horrible thing. And they, they just like not talked with each other. <laughs> so uh, uh, there definitely should be forums for inter, uh, inter in, international discussions about, about the subject. But the fact that the right to be forgotten is so politicized in the first place, it's censorship, it's the First Amendment, it's, it's uh, democracy on the internet, it sort of prevents us from having a real, or a real conversation. As Jay-Z said on that subject, uh, 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 censorship should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. And maybe we would have to change our attitudes about how we look at the right to be forgotten. Maybe leave our strong feelings about democracy on the, at the door and say, okay, how can, how can we make this thing work I, uh, between different countries and different, ver different versions of the concept? see with the, the whole right to be forgotten and the way it's implemented by you know, Google with this private judicial policy is basically there's no counterparty. You know, I say uh, this this should go away, it's about me. There's nobody on the other side to sort of argue the other side and say, well actually that's in the public interest that that should stay there mm -hmm. because maybe, you know, I know something that you don't Google which is that he's running for office next year mm -hmm. and this is like going to be really important. Exactly. So yeah. so it, it's not only, a, it's, a hidden, it's a hidden judicial system and it's one that's not an adversary, real adversary system, and so there's no there's no right there's no right to appeal from the other side because there's no information going to the other side. Mm. Exactly, and I might even add that why do we have um, judicial injunctions for privacy before a full court in the first place? Is to guarantee these sort of of, uh, uh, of uh, procedural things. Right. So and somebody from the you know Times of London or wherever can come back and say, well, actually, mm. it's, our, it's in the public interest that we don't remove this story, and mm. you know. Mm. That, exactly. That doesn't happen here. It's a, it's a complete black box right now. And since there are no procedural rules to, to give some guidelines on that, uh, there certainly is a lack of um, accountability of these decisions on the right to be forgotten. Other questions? Outstanding. Thank you so much, Michelle. Great presentation. Thank you, everybody.